Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. We'll do our best to translate the policy and politics to help you understand how these issues affect your practice and your profession. I'm Tom Krauss, ASHP's Vice President of Government Relations, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Robb, ASHP's Director of State Policy and Advocacy, and we'll be reviewing the implications of the Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe versus Wade for state law and pharmacist practice. We're going to focus on the implications of these changes for reproductive health laws on pharmacy practice. We're not going to focus on access to reproductive health services, which has been a topic of extensive reporting and political debate since the decision. ASHB's House of Delegates and Board of Directors established a policy statement addressing access to comprehensive reproductive health services. We'll put a link to that statement in the show notes for this episode, and I encourage you to review it in full. So let's turn to the implications for pharmacy practice. In recent weeks, since the Supreme Court issued its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson, which overturned Roe v. Wade, there have been widespread media reports of patients experiencing barriers to access to medication therapies that are seemingly unrelated to abortion services. During this podcast, we're going to explore the basis of those reports, provide some background on the current status of state and federal laws governing access to abortion services, and analyze how these laws may affect pharmacist practice and patients' access to medication, both for reproductive and non-reproductive purposes. So Kyle, thank you for joining us. Before we dive into the review of the law, could you review just some of the terminology we're going to be using today so we're all on the same page? So termination of pregnancy means the end of gestation. We generally don't refer to spontaneous labor and live birth as a form of pregnancy termination, though it technically is. More often, the unmodified term termination of pregnancy refers to induced termination, which is any intervention that induces the end of gestation prior to the spontaneous onset of labor. The unmodified word abortion is most commonly understood to be a reference to induced abortion, which is a concept that is broadly defined as any intervention to induce termination of a pregnancy with either the intention or prior understanding that the intervention will ultimately result in fetal or embryonic demise. Medication abortion is a subset of abortion that refers to inducing an abortion through use of medications. It's important to note that the term abortion is a formally defined term in many legal statutes. However, the definition is not standardized and can vary between different state laws. While the distinctions may seem subtle, they can be very consequential to which medical interventions are or are not permitted under various legal frameworks. And we will discuss this in more detail throughout the podcast. It's also important to note that all of these terms are separate and distinct from contraception, which is any method or device used to prevent pregnancy. Okay. Thank you, Kyle. That's really helpful background. So then just to orient us to the Supreme Court decision and what it did, can you give us the quick version of Dobbs v. Jackson and Roe versus Wade? The quick Cliff Notes version is Roe versus Wade is a 1973 Supreme Court ruling that held the United States Constitution protects the right for pregnant persons to terminate a pregnancy for any reason prior to fetal viability. And state laws cannot prohibit or restrict a pregnant person's ability to choose to end the pregnancy for any reason during that period. Prior to Roe, elective termination of a pregnancy on demand with no requirement for medical indication was only available in five states plus Washington, D.C. After Roe, 
enforcement of state anti-abortion laws in the remaining states that conflicted with the precedent set by Roe was suspended. In the years that followed, a number of states formally repealed their prior anti-abortion laws, but many did not. In fact, some states continued to pass laws to restrict termination of pregnancy after Roe, but enforcement of those laws was not implemented on account of the fact they were found to be unconstitutional pursuant to Roe. It's important to note that when the judiciary rules that a law is unconstitutional and unenforceable, it doesn't cease to exist and it's not deleted from the legal code. The only way to remove an unconstitutional law from the legal code is to pass additional legislation formally repealing it. Laws that are unconstitutional but never repealed exist as frozen text in the law. This is notable because some states had anti-abortion laws that dated back to the 1800s that were deemed unconstitutional pursuant to Roe, but they were never repealed, and they continue to exist within the legal code in those states to this day. This brings us to Dobbs versus Jackson, which was a 2022 Supreme Court decision which overruled Roe versus Wade and held that the United States Constitution does not confer any fundamental right for a pregnant person to terminate a pregnancy. Pursuant to Dobbs, states are now once again permitted to prohibit pregnant persons from terminating a pregnancy at any gestational point potentially starting from the moment of conception, with no required exceptions based on medical status or other circumstance. The Dobbs ruling now means unrepealed state laws that were previously deemed unconstitutional pursuant to Roe are subject to judicial review and enforcement may potentially be reinstated. Courts must now assess previously enacted state anti-abortion laws in relation to changes to state law, changes to state constitutions, and other judicial precedents that were set in the period between 1973 and 2022 to determine whether those prior laws are still valid and enforceable. Some prior laws have already been reinstated, while others remain suspended, and the status of many of those laws remains unsettled as the judicial process plays out. Additionally, state legislators are also considering, or are soon to consider, a variety of new laws to either restrict or protect a patient's right to terminate a pregnancy in the wake of the Dobbs decision. This has all created a rapidly evolving legal patchwork from state to state that is difficult to keep up with. In many cases, this has created an environment of anxiety and uncertainty about what practices are or are not lawful in certain jurisdictions. Okay, so that gives us the kind of background on the laws. Now let's talk about pharmacy practice and how it intersects. So pharmacists historically have not been involved in discussions around abortion laws, you know, including when many of those historical laws that you referenced were created, but that's changed. Can you talk a little bit about how that has changed? So there are a few reasons for the increased scrutiny of pharmacists. First, in 1973, there were no drugs that were FDA approved for termination of pregnancy and medication abortion was not part of the medical mainstream in the United States. So since medication abortion from licensed healthcare providers largely did not exist prior to Roe, laws from the time don't make any explicit mention of it. Second, current clinical consensus is that medication abortion is most safe and effective during the first trimester. And Roe clearly established that termination of a pregnancy during the first trimester could not be prohibited or criminalized. And third, while 0% of abortions from healthcare providers were medication-induced abortions prior to the year 2000, current data shows that as of 2020, medication abortion now constitutes the majority of all abortion in the United States. Okay, so that gets us into a discussion about the medications themselves. So what drugs are potentially implicated by state laws banning medication abortion? Just as the definition of abortion itself can be variable, there is significant variation in how different state laws define abortion-inducing drugs and the exact degree to which prescribing and dispensing of these drugs is restricted or prohibited. Some anti-abortion laws don't define the term at all, but even in those cases, the broader definition of prohibited abortion in most cases usually is inclusive of medication abortion. In fact, some laws are written so broadly they could potentially have implications for dispensing of any drug with potential to harm a fetus or terminate a pregnancy. 
On the other hand, laws in several states do formally define what constitutes an abortion-inducing drug, and laws passed in at least seven states explicitly mention three specific medications, and those medications are mifepristone, misoprostol, and methotrexate. Okay, so if those are the drugs that are most directly implicated, maybe it's helpful if you give us just a refresher on those medications, how they're supplied, and their indications for use. So mifepristone was previously marketed under the brand name Mifeprex. It's FDA approved for termination of an intrauterine pregnancy through 70 days gestation when it's given in combination with misoprostol. Mifepristone is also used off-label for management of early pregnancy loss, also known as post-miscarriage care. And it is taken by mouth as a single 200 milligram dose, which is followed by misoprostol two to three days later. Mifepristone is not recommended for use as monotherapy as this is associated with a high incidence of treatment failure. Since its approval in the year 2000, FDA policy has always restricted distribution of mifepristone and a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy or RIMS program was established for the drug in 2011. The RIMS applies to mifeprex and all generic versions of mifeprex and historically had three key components. First, it required the drug to be administered in a clinic, hospital, or under the direct supervision of a certified medical provider. This was known as the in-person requirement, and it effectively meant that mifepristone could not be mailed to patients, that outpatient and retail pharmacies were not permitted to purchase and dispense the medication directly to patients, and also that the medication could not be prescribed via telemedicine encounter. Another component of the REMS program is that clinicians had to have to register and obtain certification prior to doing a prescribing of mifepristone, and that patients must sign a patient agreement form prior to being dispensed mifepristone. In 2020, the FDA suspended enforcement of the in-person requirement for the duration of the COVID-19 public health emergency, and it effectively permitted certified prescribers to mail mifepristone directly to patients and to prescribe mifepristone via telemedicine encounters for the very first time. In December 2021, the FDA modified the REMS program to remove the in-person requirement and permit pharmacies to become certified to dispense. This means that eventually there will be a federal pathway for outpatient pharmacies to acquire and dispense mifepristone in accordance with federal law. However, it should be noted that REMS programs are implemented by the manufacturers of the drug and not by the FDA itself. This means that the manufacturers and the FDA must agree to an implementation plan before these changes go into effect. And that hasn't happened yet as the time of this recording. And it's currently unclear of when that will be fully implemented. So to recap, FDA policy currently permits certified prescribers to mail mifepristone directly to patients and prescribe via telemedicine encounters. The risk modifications though are not currently in effect and as such outpatient pharmacies at the current moment are unable to acquire and dispense mifepristone directly to their patients. Further adding to all this confusion, Many state laws that have been passed add additional restrictions or prohibition on any of these components, such as the mailing of mifepristone or the prescribing via telemedicine encounters. The next medication is misoprostol, which is also known by the brand name Cytotec. Misoprostol is FDA approved for termination of intrauterine pregnancies when given in combination with mifepristone. It is also FDA approved for treatment of drug-induced gastric ulcers. Misoprostol can also be used off-label as monotherapy to induce termination of intrauterine pregnancy. It is also commonly utilized to manage early pregnancy loss, postpartum hemorrhage, and as a pre-medication for IUD placement. The dose of misoprostol for prevention of gastric ulcers is 200 micrograms four times daily. This is noteworthy because the dose for terminating a pregnancy is 800 micrograms given every three hours up to three doses. 
And the third drug is methotrexate, which is a folate antagonist that works by inhibiting DNA synthesis and halting cellular growth. Methotrexate is most commonly utilized to treat autoimmune conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis, but it can be used to treat a wide variety of conditions and is also used in high doses as a chemotherapeutic agent. Methotrexate is an extremely common drug. IQVIA estimated that in 2021, 500,000 unique methotrexate prescriptions were dispensed to patients every month. Methotrexate can also be used off-label for termination of intrauterine pregnancy up to 49 days of gestation, though clinical guidelines recommend against its use, uh, instead preferring use of mifepristone and or misoprostol whenever possible. More commonly, methotrexate is used to terminate ectopic pregnancies. An ectopic pregnancy or an extrauterine pregnancy occurs when an embryo attaches outside of the uterus. Ectopic pregnancies are not viable pregnancies that do not result in a live birth. However, if left untreated, an ectopic pregnancy can rupture, resulting in profound and sometimes potentially fatal blood loss. Ruptured ectopic pregnancy is the most common cause of pregnancy-related maternal mortality in the first trimester. Widespread use of methotrexate as a treatment for ectopic pregnancy began in the 1980s, and today it is considered a first-line therapy for treatment of ectopic pregnancy that is preferred over surgical intervention in cases where the patient does not have any contraindications to methotrexate therapy. When utilized for termination of pregnancy, methotrexate is typically administered as a singular intramuscular injection at a dose of 50 milligrams per meter squared of body surface area. The average adult female has a body surface area of about 1.6 meters squared, which would correspond to a dose of about 80 milligrams. Thank you for that clinical refresher. I think that's really helpful for folks to understand the indications of use for those medications. So now, can you tell us about the limitations that states have placed on so-called abortion-inducing drugs? And are those limitations limited just to the three that you've described there, or is it a broader set? So once again, there's really wide variation between all these state laws, and that's feeding into the confusion around what is and is not permissible. We've definitely seen the most focus on the three aforementioned drugs because they are the most commonly explicitly mentioned, but again, broad definitions of uh, medication-induced abortion could encompass other medications as well. For example, mifepristone is FDA-approved for use up to 70 days of gestation. However, some laws ban its use from the point of conception or others allowed to be dispensed, but they might restrict its use to a shorter period of time. For example, Texas Senate Bill 4, which prohibits the use of mifepristone after 49 days of gestation. There's also variation as to whether there are exceptions for certain medical conditions or circumstances. Going back to ectopic pregnancy as an example, treatment of an ectopic pregnancy involves inducing termination of a pregnancy with prior knowledge and intention that the treatment will cause embryonic demise. If the law does not include a clear exception for the scenario, which Texas Senate Bill 4 and Kentucky House Bill 3 do not, then treatment of ectopic pregnancy could potentially be considered to be a form of unlawful abortion. A common element of these laws, we're speaking of variations, but one actual commonality of these laws seems to be the establishment of new civil and or criminal penalties for healthcare providers, including pharmacists and pharmacies, who are found to be in violation of these laws. All right. So that clearly has some potential implications for pharmacists and SHP members in their practice. So can you help us understand what those potential criminal and civil liabilities under these state laws look like for pharmacists? Potential penalties can be severe, ranging all the way up to felony convictions with mandatory jail time and or civil monetary penalties that can amount to millions of dollars for a pharmacist who's convicted of dispensing abortion-inducing drugs in violation of these laws. All of this is in addition to potential revocation of license to practice and grounds for civil suits that can seek punitive damages against pharmacists who violate the law. 
It should also be noted that most states that do define abortion-inducing drugs state that if there's a drug that could potentially be used to terminate a pregnancy, but it is prescribed for an alternative purpose other than terminating a pregnancy, then in that scenario, it is not considered an abortion-inducing drug. If these laws don't criminalize the use of these drugs for other indications, why are there so many reports of patients being unable to access these drugs for conditions unrelated to a prohibited abortion? I think the short answer is fear among individual prescribers and pharmacists to the possibility, even if it's a remote one, of potential incarceration and financial ruin. For all the reasons we previously mentioned, there's a lot of confusion out there about what the law does or does not say, and no one wants to accidentally put themselves in a situation that could be personally catastrophic. For methotrexate, it's certainly true that the overwhelming majority of the 500,000 prescriptions dispensed every month are for indications that have absolutely nothing to do with termination of pregnancy or reproductive health. But it's still true that in many cases, the cumulative amount of a one-month supply of low-dose methotrexate could theoretically be utilized to terminate a pregnancy. Similarly, the amount of misoprostol that would be prescribed for prevention of gastric ulcers over a one-month supply would be enough medication to potentially be utilized to terminate multiple pregnancies. Even mifepristone is commonly utilized for indications that would not be prohibited under these laws. In the context of a miscarriage, fetal demise occurs spontaneously, and if left untreated, sometimes the remnants of a miscarried fetus can remain in the patient's body, putting her at heightened risk for severe infection, potentially leading to future infertility or even sepsis and death. Mifepristone and or misoprostol is a first-line therapy for post-miscarriage care. In this particular scenario, it is not utilized in a manner that runs afoul of anti-abortion laws. Nevertheless, the restrictions and penalties of these laws place on the use of mifepristone and misoprostol in general is likely leading to many healthcare providers and institutions wholesale steering clear of utilizing them altogether, with the end result being that in many places, safe, effective, and necessary therapies may no longer be available to patients who miscarry. And that's obviously some of the concerning reporting that we've been hearing. So thank you for explaining that. So now that you've outlined these potential risks of dispensing these drugs in violation of some of these emerging laws, what are the legal risks of not providing access to drugs when they are prescribed? So we have also seen guidance on this subject as well. So on July 13th, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, also known as OCR, issued a document that was entitled Guidance to Nations Retail Pharmacies, Obligations Under Federal Civil Rights Laws to Ensure Access to Comprehensive Reproductive Health Care Services. And it should be noted that despite the name, this guidance does apply to all pharmacies, including inpatient hospital pharmacies. The guidance broadly reminds pharmacies that discrimination against patients on the basis of pregnancy or disability is a violation of federal law, and it outlines several hypothetical examples of potential discrimination. Among the examples, if a patient experiences severe gastric ulcers to the point that the condition meets the definition of a disability and they are prescribed misoprostol to treat the ulcers, a pharmacy that refuses to fill the prescription or stock misoprostol because of its alternative uses may be unlawfully discriminating against that patient on the basis of disability. Another example was if a pharmacy refuses to provide methotrexate prescribed to end an ectopic pregnancy, they may be discriminating against that patient on the basis of sex. Shortly after the guidance was released, ASHP had a statement expressing current the verbiage of the guidance could potentially be interpreted to undermine or conflict with pharmacist ability to exercise clinical judgment in deciding whether or not to dispense a prescription. 
ASHP, along with our peer national pharmacy organizations, requested a meeting with the Office for Civil Rights shortly after the guidance was released to discuss concerns and seek further clarity from them to affirm the role of pharmacist professional judgment and practice. But regardless of the ultimate intention of the OCR guidance, it further exemplifies the overall uncertainty and lack of clarity in compliance with the law. There are numerous scenarios where different state laws are seemingly in conflict with federal civil rights law, and it seems as if in those scenarios, pharmacists and other healthcare professionals could be put into an impossible bind where maintaining compliance with state law necessitates violation of federal law and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I can see that pharmacists are clearly going to be caught in between these kind of more restrictive state laws and this Office of Civil Rights guidance that's intended to sort of encourage broad access and kind of discourage pharmacists from restricting access to a drug. And obviously there's a tension there between those two and in our own need to exercise professional judgment based on the patient's health circumstances and, and, and diagnosis. That's clearly an area that's gonna be a continued focus of engagement from ASHP. So given that need for advocacy, what should health system pharmacists and ASHP state affiliates know about advocating regarding these state laws restricting medication abortion? Know that additional laws will be considered and potentially enacted during the remainder of the 2022 calendar year, and activity will likely continue to ramp up into 2023 as most state legislators come back into session for their regular legislative session. Boards of pharmacy and other regulatory bodies can provide assistance by issuing guidance to clarify pharmacists' duties and obligations under the law, but it's also important to note that boards of pharmacies don't make the ultimate decision of whether or not someone has violated criminal law, and they cannot grant their licensee's immunity from criminal prosecution. This means that ultimately it's crucial for pharmacists and other healthcare professionals to advocate for existing laws to be further clarified and for any new additional laws to be written with heightened consciousness for unintended consequences that can arise from a lack of clarity in the wording of the statute. That's clearly important. That's going to be an ongoing focus for ASHP. And we really do encourage our state affiliates to partner to try to get some clarity around those laws. And I will say that there is also interest from other healthcare provider organizations to get some of that additional clarity. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to partner with other organizations to explain that to policymakers. Kyle, thank you very much for explaining some of these issues. It's obviously, in many cases, a highly technical area of law and obviously a very consequential and emotionally charged area of law. And we want to make sure that our members understand how it intersects with pharmacy practice. So thank you again. Now, as I mentioned at the outset of the discussion, we didn't specifically talk through ASHP's policy statement on access to reproductive health care services. Again, we'll link that in the show notes. And for those listeners who are interested in that topic, I would encourage you to read that in whole so that you understand the full scope of ASHP's advocacy position on that topic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.